Hello and welcome to the Outside and Active podcast. My name is Dom and I'll be playing host to conversations tailored for those who love the outdoors. Thank you for joining me on this adventure where I speak to a whole host of interesting guests with inspiring stories. For our next stop on this adventure, we are joined by experienced executive and CEO turned life coach, Jay Worthy. Jay raced up the career ladder and just like everyone else, he got to the top, took his spot in the corner office and had an epiphany. He'd been climbing the wrong ladder all along and the view just wasn't what he expected. Later, after moving back to the UK after a stint in the USA, Jay struggled with depression and a loss of identity. But through the power of nature, he was able to reconnect with his adventurous childhood and ultimately taught his heart how to sing again. He believes in the power of living adventurously and that pushing your boundaries, exploring the world around you and finding out how tall you are is the secret to a happy and successful life. This episode is incredibly gripping and gives a deep insight into the highs and lows of making your way to the top of a $1 billion company, alongside the way that Jay recovers from a fast stop in his lifestyle, which ultimately led him to rediscovering his love and passion for the outdoors. This podcast episode is stocked full of insightful knowledge and advice that you can take into your own personal lives. We are delighted to be working with eGlove, who are sponsoring this episode of the Outside and Active podcast. eGlove's performance and sport-specific smartphone gloves have been developed with complete focus on the end user. Whether your sport of choice is horse riding, running, hiking, or simply walking to work, their technically superior touchscreen gloves allow for full movement, keep your hands warm and dry, enable you to grip reins or handlebar securely, and still mean you can call, text, or tweet via mobile whilst you're wearing them. We are helping you prepare for the cold months by offering a special 10% discount on eGlove products when you use the code OANDA10 at checkout. That is the ampersand and you can browse the full range and make the most of this special discount by heading to www.eglove.co.uk. And with that, let's get straight into this week's episode. Jay, thank you very much for joining us on the Outside and Active podcast. How are you doing? I'm good, mate. Thanks, Dom. How are you? I'm good, thank you. We're going to kick off with a segment that we have on every podcast now, and it's a piece of advice that a previous podcast guest has left for you, not knowing who you are. Yeah. Uh, it's an open piece of advice about anything that they'd like. So I'll be giving that to you. And it's from Nigel, who was on the podcast before, and he's a gentleman that gave up alcohol, wanted to change his life around and started walking nine kilometers before 9am every morning. And that is what he preaches. He's been doing it for the last year and a half. And his advice for you is to view the world as your oyster. Do you think that you make the most of the world that you live in today? Yeah, I love that. I think that's great advice. I wish I could meet Nigel and chat to him about (laughs) it. But um, I think for me, that's just spot on. That's totally on kind of brand for the way that I live my life today. I would say if you'd have asked me that question even five or six years ago, the answer would have been quite different. Um, it was in a fairly reflective space. And I, I know that we're going to double click on that and talk a little bit about the background. But yeah, I think today for sure, really, you know, view the world around me as as somewhere to interact with. And I feel quite strongly that we have become a little bit accustomed to kind of moving through the earth and just taking it for granted and not really stopping to pay attention to what's happening around us um, and really appreciate the place that we are. So that sense of place is super important to me. And so I'm really thoughtful every time I walk outside of my front door to really understand the land, the the nature and everything around me. So a question that we asked everyone that comes on this podcast, what yeah. do you love about being outside and active? Yeah, I think actually it's, it's really simple for me. Na- nature heals me. There's no question in my mind. And I didn't know that 
Um, it took me a while to figure it out, but nature totally heals me. And I have subsequently learned a lot about this. I'm studying for a, a master's now in, in uh, outdoor education and adventure. And there's a lot of research out there that talks about the rejuvenating and therapeutic benefits of nature. But I discovered it before I started researching. And what I discovered was that time in nature helped me kind of process and cope with what was going on kind of between my ears. Um, and I, like a lot of men, I think had really struggled to express my emotions. And then when I hit my hardest times in my career and my life, I didn't really know who to turn to. I got into a fairly senior leadership role and leadership is a very isolating, lonely experience. And we were living in the U S I didn't want to put pressure on my wife. And so I didn't know how to process and talk about those things. And I discovered when I came back, when I was at my lowest point, I was really in a dark place that getting out in nature just gave me space to think. So I think the feeling I get when I'm in nature is is peace, it's peaceful. Uh, and so I just now instinctively know that whenever I'm feeling tense or anxious or stressed or confused or depressed, just to get outdoors. We often talk about mental health and being able to get outside and mm-hmm. that, you know, if you're feeling struggles, you should go outside, then nature will help you. But the way you speak about it there, it's it's almost like the power of nature. Why do you feel that nature has that power? Yeah, I mean, we could go deep into the science and we could talk about, you know, fractal geometry and some of the, when we see different shapes in nature, we can't quite put our finger on why we find it relaxing. But actually the patterns that we see in nature are almost hardwired in our brains to see those and be relaxed by them. They help us stay calm, um, these kind of repeating patterns. But but actually, if you take a step back and don't go too deep into the science, I think it's I think it's that that break from the norm, that perspective from the day to day. I think, and this is a sweeping generalization, but I also think a lot of your listeners will probably nod along and appreciate this: that we we get a bit stuck in autopilot, mm. and we live these quite containerized lives. We're sat in a podcast studio right now. I came here in my car. I came from my house, my home office. If we're not careful, we spend all our days in boxes, these nice, warm, air conditioned boxes. And we never really kind of interact with the elements. And so we're deprived of a lot of sensory experiences, touch, smell, and, you know, sight and all of these things. So I think, I think at its basic level, getting outside reconnects us to something quite primitive that we would have experienced hundreds of years ago, millennia ago. But today we've, we've been a little desensitized to them. Were you always active when you were younger as well? Yeah, that's it. I, I would say quite an interesting part of my story is that I was a super ad- adventurous and active child. I grew up in northwest Norfolk, right by the coast. I think it's often the way that when you grow up in these amazing kind of rural, uh, beautiful, natural places, you kind of resent it as a child. You can't wait to get away. And then you get to a certain point, inflection point in your adult life, and you're like, oh, I get it now. I wish I could be back there. Um, so for me, yeah, very adventurous childhood. I grew up in the late seventies and early eighties. And so it was a different time. And I do understand that it was a a bit more, uh, kind of relaxed and free, but I would just roam for hours after school, summer holidays, we'd be, you know, by the beach, we'd be in lakes, in rivers, we'd be climbing trees, we'd be gone for hours and hours and hours on end. And then my life lost that adventurous edge. And again, I'm sure that plenty of people listening will be like, okay, I get that. I had this kind of adventurous, active childhood. Maybe for some people it was organized sport as well, which gave you that kind of outdoor experience in a more structured way. For others, it might have been Duke of Edinburgh or just playing with friends and run outs in the, in the, you know, the, the woods or whatever. 
But then we kind of get into this hamster wheel of life, don't we? We get told we've got to get qualifications. We get told we need a house and we need a mortgage. And, you know, we've got all of these responsibilities and obligations. And before you know it, you're stuck. You're stuck in this preconceived formula that society has given you. And the reality of the situation is that is a an antiquated legacy from the industrial era. We were told we had to do those things. We had to get six grades, C and above, because we had to be intelligent enough to be able to produce something. It was from an era when most businesses were making things and they needed to be able to quantify how many things Dom could make in eight hours. And then if they get enough Doms, they can make enough things and they can make money. Well, the world's just not like that anymore. And so, yeah, for me, I got stuck in that, that routine that a lot of people get stuck in where I was just on the hamster wheel, climbing the corporate ladder, racing to the corner office. Um, and actually, when I got to the corner office and I ended up becoming CEO of a billion dollar company in the United States, first non-American CEO of that company, I was 41 years old. You know, you would you would look at that optically and you say, OK, that guy's super successful, you know, nice big house, nice cars, all the trapping and they're called a trappings for a reason, all the trappings of success. Um, but inside, I was deeply unhappy. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think um, it, it happens very, very often in life where people have these very, very adventurous starts and active starts and then they get stuck on the hamster wheel of life and they kind of forget a little bit of who they are. Um, and so for me, my story is a lot about kind of rediscovering. It sounds really cliche, but it's utterly true. It's just rediscovering who I was and also, you know, what makes me happy. And the, and the final part of that story is not just because I was deeply unhappy and needed to fix myself, but also I had these children. I've got five kids at the time. I didn't have five. I had like three or four. I can't even remember. I've got so many, but, <laughs> but you know, my kids were starting, my older kids were starting to get to that age where they were asking me about life and what should they do and and I was giving them all the advice we always give our kids, you know, focus on things that make your heart sing. Don't do something just for the sake of it, for the money, you know, find ways to fill your life with joyful things and following your passion and you'll never work a day in your life. And they called me out on it. They're like, Oh great. So is that what you do? Like, well, no, it looks close to home. Yeah. It really makes you look at yourself. So, so when you were first personal trainer, yeah. How does this, where are the steps from going from that, which is quite an active, you know, stressful, but active mm. job, the steps that then take you to being CEO of a billion dollar business yeah. in the US? Yeah, it's it's a funny one, really, because it wasn't particularly intentional. So there's no really neat packaged, uh, you know, with a bow on top, uh, you know, story that I can say, okay, here was the journey. Here's what people need to do. It was your classic um I was living with friends in London, didn't have any money, sleeping on the couch, trying to figure out what I wanted to do in my life because the former plan had, had fallen, fallen away, um, which is a whole other story. And um, I, I wanted to train. I wanted to be active. I'd done a sports science degree. I needed a gym membership and I couldn't afford one. So I just walked into the nearest gym, which was LA Fitness in Golders Green. And um, the club manager was a, an Australian guy who liked rugby and we kind of hit it off straight away and he was trying to sell me a membership. And I said, look, I, I got to level with you. I got no money. Um, but I do have a um, bachelor's degree in sport and exercise science. Can I walk the gym floor uh, for free and train people and make sure they're safe and doing a thing. And then I get, I get the membership. Uh, I, yeah, I get the membership and I can use the gym. And he thankfully said yes. Um, and you know, it just, that's just happened. It wasn't particularly intentional. It was just about training. And then, 
two or three weeks later, it was a long time ago, but something like two or three weeks later, one of their fitness instructors left unexpectedly. And I was asked if I wanted a full-time job. Pay was terrible, but it was more than I was getting. Yeah. So I said yes. And then the fitness manager left and then I became a club manager. And then I started working centrally in London. And, you know, it really is uh, cut to 20 years later and I'm in the US. And and ironically, the company that I was CEO of, made the treadmills that I was training people on for free in that first job. So it's a really nice story and it is your classic kind of little bit rags to riches and it's a really nice success story. Um, It wasn't particularly intentional. I have absolutely no regrets, but I do reflect back on that time and think that I was in such a hurry to race up the ladder. I never stopped to see whether the ladder was leaning against the right building. Was that internal pressure on yourself or internal motivation to go right next step next step all the way building up to that ceo position yeah i think if you're an ambitious person and and you you have a good kind of work ethic it's very easy to fall into the routine you get into a company and you like the company and you want to impress people and we you know our entire lives are built around kind of financial security we're constantly messaged with this idea that we need to be financially secure and that of course is a really important message but we've kind of We've gone all the way to the extreme and we've, we, we're just conditioning people straight out of school to believe that they have to do these things in a certain order. Perfect example is my eldest is, is about to go away to study musical theatre. Um, and even just before she was applying to these specialist schools, she had a kind of a crisis of faith and said, well, maybe I should get a teaching degree and then do musical theatre because, you know, my, my teachers are saying, what if it doesn't work out? And I'm like, yeah, but you've got to try if it's really what you want to do, you have to try. And you can always do a one year PGCE later on, but we're kind of conditioned coming out of school and by lots of things in society to make us believe we have to do these things in a certain order. And we don't, we just simply don't. So for me, I raced up to that corner office, actually didn't really like the view when I got there um, and then had a reflective opportunity forced on me. So part of my job when I got that CEO gig was to help sell the company. So the parent company decided they didn't want to own it anymore. So I had to take it through an exit process. And then the private equity firm that came in decided they didn't want me anymore. So, you know, big ego blow, um, real kind of kick in the ribs. Um, It was difficult for me. We had lots, you know, that we had lots of stuff in the US going on. We suddenly had to retrench the UK. We had like 60 days with a I don't know, four or five week old baby to retrench to the UK because our visa status lapsed immediately as soon as my employment ended. So it was, it was a really tough time, really tough time for us. It's interesting saying that because you, you were building up and you talk about the, the trappings, mm. as you say, lots of people and it seemed like your motivation to go to the next step, keep building up, nice car, nice house, seems like the right lifestyle. Why were they trappings? And then also when that sort of drop in the roller coaster came, when that parent company then didn't want you any longer, mm. what, how was that feeling? Yeah. So if I deal with the first part of the question, um, I, they're trappings in my mind because I think the piece that people don't really tell you when you're young and you're on that first part of your journey is as, as you, as you level up, you know, if you use that kind of gaming analogy, as you level up, everything costs more. So if you, if you, if anybody listening is like a gamer, you know, you level up in a game and then everything's more expensive when you're at that new level. So it's all relative. So every time we've been kind of, it's like the biggest trip trick that 
you know, uh, capitalism ever played on us is that these companies convince us every time that, hey, Dom, congratulations, we're giving you a manager title and you're going to earn an extra eight grand a year. And you're like, yes. But before you know it, you spent it because everything at that level costs more because you look at your peer group and everybody's driving a certain car and going on certain holidays and, you know, all your friends want you to go skiing with them and it all just becomes more expensive. And so unless you're super disciplined, which is really hard to be, because you're living this very busy life where you want to rejuvenate afterwards, you just end up not really having any more to show for it. And the second part of that is that we have, we have become conditioned to believe that it is completely reasonable to have a conversation with an employer that is essentially selling your time. And it's really weird, isn't it? Because if I come to you and I say to you, Dom, you're doing a great job. We're going to give you an extra 12 grand a year. Um, we want you to re- manage these three people. It's very rare that somebody in your situation would go, okay, that's great. I need to think about that for a moment because I need to consider whether the additional burden on me individually and my time and my energy and my motivation and my stress levels is worth 12,000 pounds. I need to figure that out and I'm going to come back to you. Thank you very much. Not more often than not, we say, okay, thanks very much. I want to show my commitment to you. So I'm going to do it. And we make these trade-offs um, but there's this monetary value to them that we don't really correlate those two things. I just think that's really odd. I think that going forward, it's really important to be thoughtful about the time that you have available and how you value that time, you know, and what do you spend it doing? Well, picking up on that point, I'm not sure what your experience will be, but I'm sure people listening as they might have an active childhood and grow up and then you get into that hamster wheel of life where you're working and trying to impress and like you said that time pressure and it builds up were you able to stay active during that time period if not then how would you looking back have liked to have kept that sort of active lifestyle into your working routine yeah it's a really great question i think that for me there's kind of two parts to it so i kind of kept it up i, I always did enough to be you know kind of active, but, um, you know, I worked in the global fitness industry, right? So if anybody should have been able to do it, should have been, I had a bachelor's degree in sports science, had a master's in human performance physiology. I knew what to do. And yet I didn't always do it. I always think there's a big difference between knowing and doing. It's kind of very easy to know what you should do. If we go out into the street and ask 50 people, what do you need to do to live a healthy, happy life? I bet they would know. They would tell us. They would say, oh, you need to be thoughtful about alcohol intake. I need to be thoughtful about food intake. I need to probably be more active than I am. I need to watch my stress levels, right? They would tell us all these things. But then you look at the stats for this country and other countries and you see obesity levels and coronary heart disease rates and stress levels and you know rates of suicide. You think, okay, something's not working. We kind of know what's wrong and yet we're not fixing it. And I was one of those people. I knew what was wrong, but I wasn't doing anything about it. And that is a function of not being able to step back and look at the bigger picture. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that um, for me, I got really stuck in this place where I was so busy that I started to deprioritize the one thing that I shouldn't, which was my personal health. And I started to trade out my health and well-being to satisfy the needs and demands of others. And in most cases that was work. In some cases it was family, but I don't mean that in a negative way because they were probably doing it for me as well. But we have to make sure that we, we support our loved ones in the right way. And one of the things that I hear a lot when I talk to parents is, Oh, I could never do what you do because I've got kids. And I'm like, I got five, right? We have to make time. We have to make time to 
look after ourselves. I know this is really cliched, but when you get on an aeroplane and they're telling you about the, the face masks, they always say to you, you need to put the oxygen mask on your face first before you help your children or anybody near you, because you're no good to anybody if you can't breathe. And that is exactly what health and fitness is. Like if you deprioritize your own health and fitness, then you know, how can you be really positive influence on those around you? So as I, to answer the second part of your question, as I reflect back on my journey, what would I have done differently? I would have, <clears throat> I would have found opportunities to, I don't know, I would have found opportunities to be more active uh, on a regular, sustained and consistent level. And so I talk quite a lot these days about kind of m- micro adventures, you know, that Al Humphreys talks about micro adventures, but also micro fitness and micro well-being, which I think are probably less commonly used phrases, but I love the Al Humphreys micro adventures piece. And I started to think about those things about, well, I'm being told I should do 20 minutes of mobility or yoga and I should do journaling and I should do cold therapy and all of these things, but my day's super busy how can I start to put smaller doses of that into my life? And even in nature, and this is a good one for, for, you, for you, given given the company that you work for, we are probably conditioned to think that time in nature means that we have to spend, you know, an hour or two hours out in these beautiful landscapes to get any kind of benefit. But there was a meta-analysis done in 2010 by Preti et al. And that looked at thousands of research participants and essentially was asking the question of dose response. So, kind of said in layman's terms, like how much of this nature stuff do I need to feel happy and relaxed? And the answer was the majority of the benefit, the rejuvenating benefit came within the first five minutes. So even if you're like, you're locked down, you're listening to this podcast, you've had a really busy day, whatever's going on in your life, just get outside for five minutes. That is enough. Of course, an hour would be great. Half an hour would be great. Two hours would get a day, a month would be great. But can we just do five minutes a day walking in nature, free from distraction. So that's the kind of thing that I would do differently if I had my time again. I would build those things into my life because I now see that having a more balanced view to my day and not trying to cram in so much actually makes me more productive. I think that's such an important point, an interesting point that you make, is that just that five minutes, psychologically, you know when you come back in, I did that. that Five minutes just did me so good and... Alistair Humphreys as well, he's been on this podcast before and he spoke about those micro adventures. It doesn't need to be the two hour gym session a day or the two hour long hike that I do three times a week. It's that, I think he spoke about going to the tree at the end of of his road or something like, if I don't feel like going outside, I'll go to the tree at the end of the road. He said, most times I feel, uh, once I do that, I then go for another 10 minutes further. Right. But it's that small adventure and even just going to the tree once a month, he says, and he looks around and sees what's different. And he yeah. just takes it in 10, 15 minutes and then yeah. he's back in his house. And it's that it's just getting away from things at times. And it can be difficult. I think it's so powerful. It is really difficult, but equally, I think if we're honest with ourselves, I mean, I'm not one of these people. I hate this, this message that sometimes gets put out there, which is we all have the same like 24 hours in a day. <laughs> so just think it doesn't show any appreciation for people's individual situation what they're grappling with but but the reality is if we were truthful with ourselves there are probably at least three to five minutes in every single day that we could say i probably wasn't particularly productive our smartphones tell us if we want to look you know what apps we're spending time on and where we're maybe losing time as well and that can be a really important way for us to reflect and say okay could i build these opportunities into my day 
Um, and so little things like just to, so there's really practical advice. Cause I still, I'm a fortune 500 executive today. I still have a very busy job, but if I have an hour meeting, I'll try and finish it on the 55 minute mark and I'll do four minutes of mobility in my chair, or I'll do three minutes of breath work, or I'll do some meditation. And you would be amazed at how rejuvenated you are when you go into your next meeting because you've, you know, you've, you've positioned yourself in the right way. You've had a moment to process what just happened. And this, again, so many of us just run from one meeting to one commitment to the next and never take those opportunities. So I do think, I think Al's absolutely right. You know, even just going to the tree, I have a sit spot. I always encourage people to have a sit spot, find somewhere. It's got to be close to home. It's got to be somewhere that there are no barriers to get to. So you've got to be able to walk there. And you've got to be able to get there within a couple of minutes, which I appreciate if you live in an urban environment might be difficult, but it's not impossible. There's always something. Find a sit spot that gives you physical separation from where you're spending the majority of your day and then go there frequently. And like it sounds like Al said to you, I totally agree with if you go there frequently, one of the things that you get by by osmosis is you start to realize how different the world is around you in that environment and you start to appreciate and notice things more. You become more present. And that in reality is a lot of what being mindful is all about. It's not chanting or meditating in a, in a room for hours on end. In often, you know, more often than not, for me, I believe being kind of mindful is about being present. And being present is a way to kind of develop more gratitude and more perspective on what's going on. A lot of runners that I speak to have that same thing of if they have busy lifestyle and the first 10, 15 minutes, 5k that they're out running work, life, family, all going through their head. But as soon as they get past a certain point, they start to, and if you've got not got headphones on, mm-hmm. you can start to hear sounds, obviously depending on when you're running, you start to just relax a bit mm-hmm. more and you start to have that freedom of taking in the, the world around you. So I can, I can completely appreciate that point and, and emphasize it. Picking back up on your journey mm-hmm. and to where you are now, when you were told you were let go and that that company didn't want to keep you on anymore, that must have a massive psychological impact. <clears throat> yeah, it's huge because well, like I said before, you know, there's, a, there's an ego blow. Like it, you've got to be honest about that sort of stuff. The reality is uh, it hurts when somebody doesn't want you anymore, particularly when you've given a lot and, you know, I'm sure I'm not asking for violins here because I was well compensated. So you know, I did my work, the company chose to, the new company decided, or the new owners decided to take the company in a different direction. It is what it is, but it still, it still hurts because you, you, you realize that you're not needed or you're not wanted or for whatever reason, uh, they decide to go in a different direction that hurts. But then that's amplified quite often. If you spent 20 years, like I did doing one thing, always running up the same career ladder, kind of making sacrifices along the way, you then have this moment of reflection, wait, was it worth it? And then quite quickly, what happened for me, and I uh, speaking to a lot of people over the last couple of years, I think it happens a lot, is you suddenly suffer with a lack of identity. You don't really know who you are. And you see this a lot with, um, with parents whose children grow up and then the children go and the parents get divorced. And, and then oftentimes that is because the parents have spent so long just focusing on the kids that they've entirely lost their own individual identity. They don't know who they are anymore. And then suddenly they start trying to find who they are and they realize that they don't even spend any time together. And so, you know, I think for me it was difficult because I didn't really know 
who, who I was or, or, you know, what I wanted because everything had been so quick in my career. 20 years had gone by just like that. I suddenly found myself with this opportunity where I had to sit on the sidelines for a bit because of my separation agreement, really know what I wanted to do. I didn't know. I had to kind of reconnect with what mattered to me. And that just took me really deep. I wasn't prepared for how deep it would take me. And I didn't have any of the skills to emotional skills to process what was happening to me and be able to deal with them. None whatsoever. And and I'm not embarrassed to say that because I don't think that that's uncommon. I think it's quite common for us to, you know, suddenly find ourselves in a traumatic type situation and, and realize that we don't have any skills or experience to lean on. And so I decided that I, I, in fact, what happened was one day I was just in a really bad place and my wife said to me, okay, I said, no, I'm just, I'm so like, my head is just so busy. I just don't know what I want to do. I'm going to go for a run at the local forest and I could be gone for several hours. Please don't worry about me. I'm not, I'm not going to take my phone. I just need to get away from everything. And I, I live up near Swinley forest and I went running and, and to your point a little while ago, you know, first 20, 30 minutes, the head's noisy and it started to get quieter and quieter and quieter. And I was, there was not many people. I couldn't see any people where I was. Cause once you get running a bit, it's quite a big forest. I was alone and I started to just walk. I stopped running. I just started walking. I was looking around at me and these feelings of being in nature just kind of came back to me. And I started to realize how I needed that. And so that is how my kind of love for the outdoors was rekindled, was just creating that space to get away from it all. And now I, that is a tool. That is a tool that I've developed. So if I'm having a really tough week, I down tools and I go outside and I find the nearest green space, wherever that may be, wherever I may happen to be in the world. And I go and get connected, you know, and it will be like touch a tree or take your shoes and socks off and feel the grass on your feet or whatever. Listen, smell, see. I think those things are all so important, but I didn't know any of those things. I was just on the hamster wheel, just mm. going, 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 and then wasn't going. And then the worst thing was, that that ship just kept on sailing off into the sunset and they didn't even slow down to throw me the lifesaver ring. They're like, yeah, we're off. We've got a job to do, which is fine. It's the world. But I was just not equipped to deal with the feelings that I had. So we've talked, spoken about the hardest thing to do is to step outside and start mm-hmm. doing that. During the summer, we've just experienced a hot summer. It's, it's easier. It's, you know, lighter. It's warmer. Yeah. yeah. During the winter, where does that motivation come from? Where does that motivation have to come from for you, but then also advice to other people? Yeah. It, um, I, I personally am quite fortunate that I'm an early person. So I like being up early. One of the ways that I got control of my life when I started to realize that <clears throat> I was kind of living quite unhealthily um, before I got the CEO job was kind of starting to own my mornings. And that's where the whole 28 summers thing comes from. And so by owning my mornings, I started to take control where I felt like everybody else was in control of my day. And so I was able to build into my mornings the things that I wanted to do. And that was that was certainly really helpful. Um, and so I'm, I'm fortunate that the mornings is is like part of who I am. So even when it gets dark, I find it easy to be awake. But for those that find it hard, um, I, I do think that this idea of building time outdoors throughout your day is really is really powerful as well. Um, I think if you live in this country, you've got to learn to love the elements. Um, and I do believe that, you know, if you're well prepared, you can really have amazing experiences all year round, but it's about being thoughtful 
of, you know, what you need to wear and what provisions you need to take with you or opportunistic and looking for those gaps in the weather. And that's where this kind of, you know, either micro adventure or more likely like micro well-being kind of breaks where we're not going on big grand adventures, but we're more like, I just want to get outside for five minutes and, and reset my brain. Um, you can do those between showers, you know, it's, it's been raining all morning here, but I guarantee at some point today, there'll be a nice five or 10 minute break, just get outside. And that's the beautiful thing about nature is it's ever present. It's always there. And it's always putting on a show for you. It's like a cinema that always has a, a showing every day, you know, sun, sunrise and sunset, I think are key events that people can, can focus on. Um, one of the things that I always say to people and, and actually in the winter, this is, this is quite a nice one to do um, is try and see the sunrise and sunset on the same day. But not just see it, not just be up and but actually stop and watch it and be present when the sun is rising and the sun setting, because that's actually an adventure, an outdoor adventure you can have that really doesn't take any planning. It's free. And that show is on for you every single day. I like that. It'd be interesting to pick your brains as someone who's lived and worked in the UK, but also in the USA. Mm. Is there a clear cultural difference with physical activity in the UK compared to us yeah i think so i mean it depends on which states you're in as well i was yeah. in illinois so it's a midwest state it's, it's amazing in the summer beautiful and hot but in the winter is seriously cold so there's some seasonality to people being active and outdoors um conversely if you live in like california or florida it's like sunshine states you're you're active all year round and so you definitely see that um and you know seeing the same in europe if you go down to spain there's a lot more people active in the morning before the sunrise and in the afternoon after the sunset because they're very hot during the summer and that kind of thing. I think here in the UK, um, we, I, I think post-COVID, we've seen a lot more people be be active, but we're definitely seeing those rates drop off again and people kind of going back inside. Um, and then culturally, I think in the US, it's, a, it's very much a, like a rise and grind culture. So mm. it's get up, you know, meetings on the calendar from 7 a.m. And I think for anybody... Anybody listening who's kind of nodding along um, wherever they may be in the world who feels like work is like all consuming and it's always on, you know, some interesting stats for you. There was some research done a couple of years back um, about 65 percent of Americans check their email as soon as they wake up in the morning. Half of all Brits grab their smartphone as soon as they wake up in the morning. And, and we, you know, it's so easy to do because yeah. it's right there. You probably use it as your alarm clock. But that gets us into this negative cycle of, okay, work owns the day. I don't own my day. And therefore, in that situation, it's so hard to kind of layer back in the things you want to do. So I always say, if, you, if you're listening to this uh, or you're in this point in your life where you do think the balance has gone slightly wrong, um, I genuinely believe this idea of owning your morning is super powerful. I'm not necessarily a huge advocate of like the 5 a.m. club mindset because again not everybody's a morning person not everybody can do that if you've got busy busy life with kids or whatever work commitments you work shifts for me i have this notion that i call it the morning menu and it's a bit like um that all the ingredients are there and some mornings you might make an omelet but other mornings you might like have dippy eggs or whatever and other mornings you might have just toast because you're in a rush or a bowl of cereal it's this notion that you, you don't have to do the same thing every day, but can you get up in the morning and just make yourself from the ingredients you have that's relevant? So this morning I had a much more relaxed morning than I've had recently. So I was able to go in the ice bath and I did some reading. I did some journaling. Yesterday was my wife was out all day at a spa day. So I was like on it with the kids run. So I had, yeah. but I still had 10 minutes, five minutes of breath work, five minutes of meditation. 
It was, that's my, that's my bowl of cereal. Right. So I was able to get that done super quick. And I think, I think for all of us, it's about this idea that, okay, the, the days are getting shorter. It's, it's harder for us to get outside, but let's, let's be intentional. And that I think is probably the best piece of advice I could give It's certainly the advice I would, I do repeatedly give myself and I would give myself again is just be intentional, be more thoughtful and present and don't let other people own your day. If you're opening your email or social media, other people's intentions are leading your day. And therefore you can't be upset if you don't get done what you want to get done. So if you want to, if you want to be responsible and own your day and feel like you're getting done what you want to get done and, and prioritizing your well-being then you need to take control in the morning. It's so interesting, that idea of own your day. And I'm guilty of it as well, whether it be work or just general social media. As soon as I wake up, even if it's before the alarm, 3, 4, 5 a.m. in the morning, I have to check the phone. And that really is such a bad habit to mm. get into. And it, I think it's something, a piece of advice I would take now is just take that first half an hour or yeah. however long it is yeah. and take that time away from your phone. I think Stephen Bartlett, talks about it of he doesn't look at his his emails i think maybe once a week he'll look at it and right. have, there is someone that if there's something super urgent super important that gets filtered through but it's control away from him because yeah. it's so I, I have that look at your emails and it's like ocd almost with it i have to clear it i have to get through it i have to deal with it whereas that's not you then controlling your time yeah. and your work and your energy that's that's that email or whatever yeah. it be whether it be instagram tiktok etc that's taking that time away from you and time away from the time you might have in nature if i had to give you you'd basically be doing this entire podcast but a, a sales pitch of nature an mm -hmm. adventure to someone who goes oh, it's rubbish i don't believe in that what's your sales pitch so i think probably it, there's a lot of things that i could say that almost all of your guests will probably have said before you've had some amazing guests on who are all incredible adventurers and outdoor enthusiasts. So I think the, the answer I will give would be a little bit, a little bit different to maybe, maybe give some people some pause for thought. And that is I'm fortunate enough to have had a really successful career and been on lots of uh, leadership training, um, you know, MBA type training, uh, lots and lots of money has been spent on this. And I think I've learned more about leadership and being successful in work from nature and time in nature than I have in the classroom. And that is because time in nature gives you perspective. It teaches you how to communicate and the importance of good communication. You get communication wrong when you're out somewhere remote and it can go badly wrong. It teaches you perspective. You can't control everything. We're led to believe in classrooms that we can be book smart and all these things mean that we can go in and we can control the situation. But the reality is in business, almost everything is out of your control. There's so little that's in your control. And so I think winning at business is, is often about how well do we cope with the conditions around us? Um, and so I think that time in nature uh, and adventure is about learning to control the controllables and not sweat the stuff you can't control. Um, and so you learn so much about being out in nature about yourself and about how you handle pressure and how you handle adversity and how you handle situations when a lot of the stuff is out of your control. I actually think that time in nature and living adventurously will make make you as a listener will make you a better leader. And, and when I say a leader, I don't necessarily mean just a business leader. I mean, a leader in your society, in your family, in your relationship, a person who is 
supporting those around them and nurturing those around them because you become much more reflective of your, of yourself. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, ultimately for me, living adventurously is about pushing your boundaries a little bit. And I mentioned earlier about living this containerized life. I think one of the downsides of that outside of just being stuck in a box is we tend to live quite comfortably in a comfort zone. And so on my website, I have a, a quote from T.S. Eliot, which is one of my favorite quotes in the world, which is, if you're not in over your head, how do you know how tall you are? And I think this idea of getting out and challenging ourselves, and for some people listening, that may be run a one kilometer, walk one kilometer, um, you know, walk around the local forest. For others, it might be climb Kilimanjaro, and, and, and it could be anything in between, right? It doesn't really matter what it is. It's about saying, can I commit to something that probably frightens me a little bit and then set about making it happen? Because in that commitment and the space in between and the journey in between is where a lot of self-development happens. You've spoken about your studies Mm -hmm. and taken on a few postgraduate studies as well, all sort of based around uh, the outdoors is that something you did straight after your undergrad or is it something you're going back to now if it's now yeah. what's made you want to go back into yeah. education? Yeah, so I um, I did my uh, human performance physiology master's during my career. So I had a break after my bachelor's and then, I don't know, nine years, eight or nine years later, I did the, the human performance physiology master's. The one I'm doing now, though, the outdoor education one, is absolutely driven by this this fixation and fascination I have with the rejuvenating power of nature. And it's one of these interesting things. If you go back, I don't know what the right, the right number is, Don, but let's hypothetically say 30 years, people probably still thought smoking was okay. Right. Then you go back 20 years and people were starting to get their head around the fact that smoking was bad. Go back 10 years and most people knew it was bad. Today, it's, it's pretty much taboo to smoke. Like you're an, you're, you're an outlier if you smoke for the most part. Now everybody knows smoking is, is incredibly bad for you and for everybody else around you. And therefore it's not just, Oh, I'm all right, Jack. It's about, Oh, I'm not actually looking after those around me. That took like four decades. And you can go back to 1989, mid mid eighties. And Kaplan was talking about, um, attention restoration theory, this idea that when we go out into nature, it restores us and we can focus better. So you go back to Wilson's biophilia, this idea that we can be out in nature and being, being alongside and part of nature is, is actually part of the human, you know, psyche and who we are. They were talking about that three decades ago. If we went out into the street and said to people, do you think being outside is, is therapeutic and rejuvenating for you? I think people would say yes but knowing and doing a difference. So for me, why did I go back and study and what's driving that? I think, first of all, it's to make sure that I really understand, okay, how do you take people from knowing to doing? And then how do we really start to quantify the dose response? So how much time in nature people really need, which I mentioned earlier, and how frequently they should get out in nature to to kind of restore and rejuvenate themselves. Because I feel like we're starting to get to that tipping point where People know, governments know, agencies know this is what needs to happen, but we haven't actually figured out how to get people to do it en masse. And a big part of that is that um, getting in the outdoors is still quite a privileged experience. 
And so there are a lot of barriers. We talk, we hear, I hear a lot of people on social media talking about getting outdoors is free and everybody can do it. And whilst that's a nice soundbite, it's actually not true. So, you know, some really underprivileged groups and, you know, lower socioeconomic groups find it really difficult to get outdoors. And I think we have an obligation to really understand that and find ways to help everybody be able to access the kind of rejuvenating power of nature. I spoke to Shigeru Akabusi on this podcast quite recently, yeah. and she talks about motherhood, mm-hmm. parenthood, mm-hmm. balancing time with children. Yep. She has four children. She, she said that she struggles and she has to work active lifestyle into her everyday life. You have five children, busy job, and yep. you have a number of things going on. How do you balance that time in your life? Yeah. Well, the first answer um very honestly, is I have an incredible wife and we have an amazing relationship. My wife, George, and I have been married for 15 years in 10 days. And, you know, I think that honest, authentic uh, relationship with good communication um, and the ability to kind of call each other out and support and, and, and kind of nurture each other is really, is really important. And so, you know, that has to be totally solid for for everything else to work really well at the risk of stating the obvious but but i think also um i would say the answer is it's really hard it's really hard because there's often there's often struggles for your attention between the things that you love and the things you feel like you have to do and you know that doesn't always go away as much as i i i would love to go and you know live off grid and not have to earn any money that's not really practical i've got you know parents that i want to support and children that I want to support. And so I have these kind of commitments. I want to be productive member of society. I don't want to just go and be a hermit mm-hmm. and, you know, just, just look after myself living off grid. So there are some financial implications of that desire to, to kind of support the people that I love. Um, so yeah, it's hard. There's always conflicting priorities, but I do think that, you know, I know I keep saying it, but owning your morning, I do really believe is a powerful way to tee up what matters And you probably heard of the whole Eisenhower matrix, you know, this idea of what's urgent and important versus urgent, but not important versus not urgent and important, right? This, this quadrant, if people haven't seen it, um, it's really powerful way of like laying out, okay, what should I be focusing at? Cause that's one of the downsides of email and other things is that everybody's good at selling. So they're going to email you and they're going to tell you their thing is the most important thing that you have to do. And we've, we've, I think got a little bit stuck in, we, we don't triage stuff. We just deal with it in the order it came in. And actually what we need to do is, is flex that muscle and learn how to triage things. So that's what I think if I had any superpower, it would be, I'm pretty good at triaging. So I'll look at stuff and I'll make sure that the things I'm spending my time on the things that matter to me and that help me, um, attend, you know, attend to my goals and the people I want to serve. And then the other thing is, I think, you know, I have a, a project that I'm launching right now called the man alive project. Um, and I think that often it helps if we focus our energies on, on, you know, the groups that we think we can, we can most positively impact. And as much as I talk to everybody, I do consistently see a lot of men and particularly a lot of fathers, um, more often than not, who might be the primary earner in a family, um, really struggling, like not really knowing how to kind of compartmentalize everything, um, how to talk openly about their emotions, um, how to process kind of past trauma um, and how to, you know, kind of live a productive and happy life and not deprioritize the health. So I do talk quite a lot about that these days. I feel like more and more that nature has an important role to play in helping men 
open up and talk more about their experiences so that they can be, you know, frankly, more productive in society. What do you want your children's relationship with nature and activity to be like? I want my kids to know that um, it's a really, you know, as long as we look after the planet, it, it's ever present. It's going to be there and it will be, it's like the best friend that, that is always there in your, in your darkest moments. And to kind of consider nature like that, it's a friend, it's a member of the family that you love. And I think that means two things. One is it means you need to take care of it because if you just had a friend who was always there as a shoulder to cry on, but you treated them like crap, um, you never called them unless you needed them. Like eventually that friendship falls apart. Right. So that's, I think how we need to think about nature and the planet. We have to start nurturing it because it does so much for us. We have to make sure that we nurture the planet. And then the other thing is that it's always there. It will be this, this reliable source of power. It's like, you know, it's like a petrol station. It's like, you need to recharge, just get out in nature. So that is a message that my wife and I share with our kids all the time. And so I hope that their relationship with nature is like that, whether, you know, my eldest might just dip in here and there and, you know, never be that outdoorsy. And one of my others might end up, you know, climbing mountains and trekking jungles. It doesn't matter to me as long as they, they have a respectful relationship with nature and they understand how nurturing it is. Because I didn't as a child. Really? Yeah, I think I took it for granted. Mm. Totally took it for granted. Do you feel like your relationship with nature is similar now to what it was when you were younger? Obviously, you have the more knowledge and understanding, but in terms of that lo- that pure just love and admiration yeah. for nature. Yeah, well, I think it is in the sense that I think um, I think that I've I've rediscovered that childlike love of being outdoors. And here's a good example, right? Is if you go back five or six years, if my, if I went for a walk with my kids and they were in like, I don't know, new jeans that we just bought them from next or whatever. And they were crawling around getting muddy because I was irritable and stressed and busy and lots going on. I would have, I would have reacted badly and I would have been like, don't get them messy. You know, now we're gonna have to, now I'm like, yeah, go explore. Like feel the dirt. How does it feel? Smell it. Like, what does it taste like? What can you taste in the air? What like They're the conversations we have when we walk around. So I think I have a much more childlike excitement about being in nature. I get much more excited when I see things. I, one of the things that I love to do when we go for walks is climb trees. I'm 45, <laughs> you know? It's never too late. No, exactly. And I kind of love that. You know, it's like, I'm Jay, I'm 45 and I climb trees, you know? Why not? Because why, why, why do we stop climbing trees when we become adults? Like there's a reason we climb trees It's because it's fun. It builds agility. It builds strength. It builds connectedness with nature. So why do we stop doing that? Because at some point we think, oh, adults shouldn't climb trees, but why not? Right. So yeah, I think I have that childlike um, enjoyment. What I have now, which I didn't have as a youngster is I also have an appreciation for my impact on the planet or a gr- I should say a growing appreciation because I think we're all still learning exactly the impact we have on the planet. But, you know, whereas a kid, I would have, I would tear through places and I wouldn't really worry about the consequences. Now I'm much more thoughtful about what habitats am I moving? What impact am I having on this space? How can I be, I love this, this question that gets asked now more and more around. It's obvious what's in it for me. When I go to a beautiful, I'm looking on your wall and there's this amazing landscape. It's obvious what's in it for me to go to that space, beautiful snow-capped mountains. Like I want to be there right now. The question that I think is super interesting is what's in it for nature? What's in it for nature for me to go there? 
because if I've got to fly there and get on a plane and I might take stuff in single use plastic and all that, then I'm having a negative impact. So if I'm going to go there for me, one of the burdens that I'm starting to introduce as I think about my adventures going forward is um, what's in it for nature. What can I do to, to help improve the situation in that space? What's the proudest moment of your life so far? <clears throat> well, I mean, becoming a parent, I, I think the, we uh, in society t- often uh, introduce ourselves by how we make money. And, and I have learned in the last, I don't know, five, six, seven years that the thing I'm most proud of is being a father. So when you, if you would have said to me when I came in today, Oh, Hey, I'm Dom. What do you do? What do you do for a living? I would have said, I'm a dad. That would have been my answer to you because I think that we should define ourselves, by what brings us the most joy in life? So I would have said to you, I'm a dad. Then I would have said I'm an adventurer, which is crazy because I'm not like ran out fines or, you know, but I'm, you know, somebody who loves being outside and living adventurously. And, you know, somewhere down the list, fifth or sixth, I might have told you what I do to pay the majority of my bills, but it certainly doesn't define me. It's really interesting. It is. And I never thought about it like that. But we do, don't we? If you went to a barbecue at the weekend, well, it's wrong time of year, but if you went to like a party or whatever, met some friends at a pub and you met a friend's partner and they are like, Oh yeah. What do you do for a living? You would have, you would have probably just gone straight out. Oh, I work for these guys. And, and, and even if it's a job you're proud of, um, I get why you would do it, but actually like, is it really who you are? Is it really what defines you? And so one of my favorite things to do when I meet new people is I say, I don't ask them what they do for a living. I say, Oh, what brings you the most joy? And you normally get some weird looks. It's a bit like climbing trees at 45. People are like, this guy's mental. Society. It's it's an interesting question, right? We say, what do you do? And and, yeah, Yeah. I think it's a fascinating question to ask people. Like what brings you the most joy? Try that next time. Yeah. (laughs) You'll get some weird looks, but it also is an amazing conversation starter. It's like that is dinner party conversation 101. So, you know, anybody out there listening, like the next time you meet somebody new, don't ask them what they do for a living. Ask them what brings their most joy or what makes their heart sing you'll get some amazing answers. Somebody will tell you, I, lo- I love to crochet or I like drawing cats. Like you'll get some crazy answers, but you'll start to really know people. So moving to 28 Summers, <laughs> talk to me about that. Where's it come about and what is it? Yeah, so 28 Summers is, you, you kind of got the story without getting the story. So uh, uh, if I explain where the name came from, I think it connects some of the dots because we, I know we've jumped around a little bit, but it will start to kind of put a bow around it all. So Pre getting the CEO gig, I'd become a vice president in this very big company. Um, you know, I was doing very well, but I was feeling like everybody was owning my morning. I was looking in the mirror and seeing I was putting on weight. I was looking unwell. I was getting irritable with the family. You know, I was putting pressure on my relationship with my wife. So I knew I had to do something. And so I decided that I need to start owning my mornings. I read the 5am club. Um, I read, um, uh, Miracle Morning and lots of other resources. And so I saw enough things out there that said being in control of your morning is good, but I didn't necessarily like everything I saw because it felt a bit regimented. So what I decided to do was, um, it's very American, I was going to start working out in my basement. So I got some fitness equipment, which clearly I could get hold of pretty easily. And I started working out in the mornings, but I said to myself, I'm not going to listen to music when I work out. I'm going to listen to podcasts, which are you know still relatively new back then, and also watch you know content on YouTube while I'm working out. And I was listening to um, an interview. Um, there's a podcast called Impact Theory by Tom Bilyeu, and he was interviewing an author who I love, and I'd read his book. He's called Jesse Itzler. He'd written a book called 
um, living with a seal where he lived with a Navy seal for 60 days. Um, he's a successful guy. He built a business that was selling fractional ownership in jets and, you know, he's just a super successful guy. He's 50 years old. And Tom said to him, where does your energy come? Like, you're such an energetic guy. You, you never want to miss a day. And, um, Jesse said to Tom, well, I'm 50 years old. And he said, well, so he's like, well, the average life expectancy of an adult male in the United States is 78. So I've got 28 summers left. And it was like, it's so utterly cliched, Dom. And when I sell, tell this story, sometimes people are like, oh, you've made that sound good because you want it to sound good in a podcast. This is genuinely true. Mm. It's like everything stopped because it was like everything I'd been grappling with for the last few years suddenly came into focus. And I was like, that's it. At that point, I was like 40. So I was doing the math. And I'm like, oh, so you can tell I lived in America. I was doing the maths. <laughs> and, um, and so I was 40 and he was saying 78. So I'm like, have I got 38 summers left? And if I've got 38 summers left, I'm actually past halfway. And then I started becoming really fixated on this idea that there was this notional atomic clock somewhere ticking down to zero with Jay Worthy written over it. And one day it was going to hit zero. And if you were able to tell me, Jay, that's got 14 days left or 14 months left or one year left or whatever the right answer is, would I keep doing everything I was due to do that week? And the answer was immediately, of course, no. Mm. So then I became really fixated with the idea that we should just do that anyway. We should live as if we knew that the clock was going to hit zero soon and fill our life with experiences. And so there in that moment, the idea for 28 Summers was born. And it really is a, it's a philosophy more than anything else, but it manifested itself as a podcast because that was a neat way for me to start telling stories and, you know, people are listening to podcasts. And so I've been fortunate enough to get lots of listeners who, have given great feedback, some incredible guests. And what we typically just talk about is ways to build adventure into your life and to live adventurously for you, whatever that may mean, whether that's sleeping in a tent in your garden, like Max Woozy, one of my, one of my favorite guests, who's 11 year old boy who has been sleeping in a tent for nearly two years in his garden. He's just an amazing guy all the way through to, you know, Mark Beaumont, who's the world record holder for, you know, circumnavigation of the globe on bike and everybody in between. It doesn't matter who they are, where they're from, male, female, whatever, you know, uh, group they're from, there's this opportunity for us all to live more adventurously. And in doing that, we start to buck out of this autopilot. And what I, what I always say with 28 Summers, Dom, is if you can't remember one really remarkable experience in the last seven days, you're in autopilot. So that's my, that's my litmus test for anybody listening. If I said to you in the last seven days, tell me one really remarkable thing. And it could be I was walking along and I saw, you know, this mother duck with all her ducklings go across the road. This happened to me the other day. I was picking up my jujitsu coach, going to a class and um, we were, and there, it wasn't a duck, it was a goose. And she walked across with all of these little baby geeks and all the cars stopped, but she took her time. And it, we were there for 10 minutes and no cars beeped their horns no cars tried to go round, and it was like this beautiful moment where, for once, we all just stopped and let nature do its thing. Nature, and it, that was a remarkable experience in my week. So it doesn't have to be, oh, I, you know, got a PB in ten k, or I climbed a mountain, or whatever. But like, what remarkable experiences are we really? Because if you can't remember them, they're not remarkable. And so I think that's a way for us to all live this twenty-eight summers philosophy of. Am I winning the week? Are there remarkable experiences in every single week? Because at the end, 
we're not going to lay on our deathbed. I lost my uncle on, on Saturday, so I'm quite reflective about this. And you think in those dying moments where you've got a few days left, I know this sounds really morbid and I don't want this to be the end, but um, I do think it's important for us to think about that and say, at some point I'm going to be there. I'm going to be two or three days away from the end. And am I going to look back and, and just see all of these vivid memories and, uh, you know, lying on a, on a desert island in, in the Exuma Islands after a, paddling 200 kilometres, which I did last year, or, you know, camping on the top of a mountain? Or am I going to remember being sat in a boardroom trying to keep my eyes open during a presentation? Like, I know what I'm going to remember. And, I, and they're etched in my brain. And so I know that sounds like a big sales pitch, but I, that's like unashamed. I think so many of us are stuck in autopilot. It's a bit like the Matrix, right? And we are. We're stuck in mm. autopilot. And, and so my litmus test... Think about something remarkable that happened in the last seven days to you or that you witnessed. And if you can't remember it, you're in autopilot. Now start making micro changes to get to get out of autopilot. I like how that does tie in as a bow with a bow around it. Everything that you've spoken about, about seizing life and, yeah. and micro adventures and, yeah. and micro well-being and stuff like that. It, it'd be interesting to know where people can go to find out more about you, yeah. 28 Summers, everything. I mean, this chat's been so inspirational. I've still got a couple more questions, but where can people go to find out about Jay Worthy? Oh, thanks, mate. That's very kind of you. And I, you know, for me, I'm just like a regular bloke. I'm just like a dad of five, just trying to be the best version of myself that I can be. And I never want to give this impression that I'm perfect because, you know, go, go chat to my wife and kids and they'll tell you <laughs> I'm not. But I, But I also think that that's what life is all about is that we're presented with all of these people on social media that appear perfect. And the reality is nobody's perfect. Um, the reality is we've all got, you know, our, our weaknesses and our little kind of quirks and the things that we need to work on. And we sometimes flash when we don't mean to. And, and so, yeah, I'm not trying to present myself as this person that's got it all figured out, but I am presenting myself as somebody who is just a student who just wants to keep getting better, keep learning, keep trying to improve and also share that because I, so 28 summers for me really is all about what I wish was there when I went through this. And so it's just a place where people can kind of congregate and connect with other, other people that have got amazing stories. And so for the most part, I'm trying to share other people's stories rather than my own. The website is 28, the number two, the number eight, and then summers.com. So it's really easy. 28 summers.com. They can email me, J at 28summers.com. I always love chatting to people who are, you know, either going through stuff or have been through stuff or have questions about living adventurously. I'm on Instagram at one day adventurer. And that's a super important handle as well, because it's about this idea that we hate, we need to, you know, not be so fixated on these big grand adventures and be really more thoughtful about living in the moment and having these small, you know, maybe before work adventures or lunchtime adventures, that kind of thing. So that's about, I think that's about all the locations they can find me. I want to pull out a couple of things you said in the last few minutes. I think those natural human flaws that you've spoken about, which I think, as I say, is just natural. So mm -hmm. it, it, that's part of being a human being. But also just before that, you've spoken about the adventure for your uncle. And really what got to me is doing things for you. Sometimes mm -hmm. we do things for other people, whether yeah. that still might be something active, whether that's running because you're running for a marathon is that for you is that for someone that you're trying to impress you're trying to raise money which is great on one hand but also yeah. if it's not doing it for you you're not satisfying that thing that you know, you look back in the last seven days and yeah. what have you done for you yeah it's that idea again of 
owning your day, owning your life. And it's really interesting. And it reminds me of a conversation I had with uh, a gentleman called Kevin Weber on mm-hmm. this podcast, mm-hmm. uh, Dead Man Running, yep. who was given two years to live in 2014, I think. is still alive today. And speaking to him and that motivation of every single day is a gift for him. Of course, his experience is different, but it just you don't know when that's going to come around and you touched yeah. on it before. You don't know when that two days before mm-hmm. the end of Dom Jay is going to be. Yeah. So the most you can make of every single day, second moment is really important. Yeah, I think that's right. And and I think um, we, we should never be ashamed for self-love and self-care. And I think um, it, it's easy to feel like you shouldn't focus on those things because you start to think, Oh, there's so many people um, less fortunate than me. So I should just keep grinding or I should never talk about it if I'm feeling low and those kind of things. But, but the reality is like, when I was in a really bad place, I never talked about it because I thought that people would not understand. They would just see me as, you know, white and privileged and probably they would perceive me as wealthy. And so nobody would want to listen to that. Um, and so I never talked about it, but the truth is that, you know, depression and anxiety and those feelings, they don't care who you are, what you have. They, they'll just come at you out of the blue. So, yeah, I think that I think it's super important to to focus on self-love and self-care and be really honest with yourself. And, I, and so I, I that's a movement that I think needs to happen more and more is that we need to normalize people talking openly about their feelings and not chastise them. You still see it all the time on social media. Somebody will say something and they'll get trolled. And I, you know, that's the, that's the worst of human nature. And we've got to try and eradicate that and try and encourage more people to talk openly about their feelings and be, I think for men particularly to be more vulnerable as well. Um, I think women generally do a better job of that, of being vulnerable. I've got three daughters and a, and a wife and, um, you know, I see with, with us boys for whatever reason, we, we tend to find it difficult to be vulnerable um, so yeah, I, I, I think that those things are super important. Um, and I think in general, you know, my message is about really looking, get grabbing that oxygen mask and putting it on first. And I think that that is the best way to be a really positive influence on the people around you. It's been incredibly interesting and inspiring talking to you and not only hearing your story, but also having practical takeaways from this conversation or, you know, people listening as well that they can actually do to have that five minutes before the end of a meeting to do some mindfulness, some breathing or to work something into their everyday life and everyday fitness. So I appreciate that a lot. And before we let you go, I've got one more thing for you. You had your piece of inspiration from the beginning. So I'd like to ask you for your piece of inspiration for a guest that we're going to have on the podcast in the future. Yeah, I think um, it's probably, it's probably an obvious one, right? But it's, um, for me, I think everything I've talked about stems with this idea that we have to be outside to be whole. Um, and so I think the piece of inspiration or the comment that I would share with the next guest would be, can you spend five minutes outside free from de- distractions every single day? And what impact might that have on your life? Jay, it's been an absolute pleasure. I appreciate you coming onto the podcast. Yeah, no worries, mate. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Outside and Active podcast, season five, episode six with Jay Worthy. It was a pleasure to actually have him in the studio and get to chat with him. I hope you enjoyed the episode and could take pearls of wisdom from his story and just the, the pieces of knowledge that he gave to me and now gives to you. If you think that someone would enjoy this podcast just as much as you, then make sure to send this on to them, get them involved in the community and make sure to check out outsideandactive.com for even more amazing podcasts. Don't forget to use our special code for eGlove, the sponsors of this Outside and Active podcast. When you use code O and A10 at checkout, and that's Ampus and don't forget, you will get 10% off any product of eGlove. And as we're going into the winter of the months, whether you're running, cycling, horse riding, going on snow holidays, there is an eGlove for you. So make sure to check that out. You can use the code O and A10 at checkout. And you can make the most of that by heading to www.eglove.co.uk. And don't forget that in that code ONA10, it is an ampersand. I've been your host, Dominic Brown. And until next time, enjoy the outdoors.